Matthew chapter 5. I do want to give a little bit of an introduction before we get into the text this morning. As I mentioned uh, earlier, it is a very important passage, a really foundational passage for us as Christians. This would be one of the passages that serves, undergirds how we live our lives as Christians. Where we are in this sermon, the sermon that spans three chapters in Matthew's gospel, is Jesus has just finished, we've just finished working through what's known as the Beatitudes, where Jesus pronouncing these blessings on those who are true believers, true believers in Christ, those who have put their faith in Christ and have by the Spirit of God been born again. And Jesus, as he's walked through these Beatitudes, uh, drawing out for us this distinction between the Christian and the world around us. And this, that in the Beatitudes, he's drawn for us a big, bright line separating those who follow him and those who do not. These Beatitudes, as we've looked at them over the last few weeks, have highlighted the differences and the distinctions that exist between us as followers of Christ and those who do not follow Christ. And so as we walk through that, we saw that it started with those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize their great spiritual need before God. How many of you recognize that need, that you are poor in spirit? Amen. And that, that contrasts so so starkly with the world that says, I'm, I'm pretty good. I've got it all figured out. I'm doing just fine, thank you very much. There's this distinction that we see, and so Jesus has highlighted this distinction between those who follow him and those who don't, between the Christian, the true Christian, and the world. But that leaves us with an important question, and that question is this, as a follower of Christ, as a true believer, what should our relationship to the world be like? What does that relationship look like? Because we are distinct from the world, we've seen this, Jesus has drawn this distinction for us, we're not part of the world. However, he has called us, he's, he's called us to to be uh, called us out from the world and, and he's saved us and he's redeemed us and he's sanctified us and we're, we're not isolated from the world but we are in the world. We're not of the world as Jesus says but we are definitely in the world. And so as we are now Christians in the world, what does our relationship to the world look like? How do we relate to the world? How do we live in the world that does not follow Christ? Now, we agree on that. We agree that we are called out. We agree that we are distinct. We agree that we are not isolated. We agree that we are in the world, but that we are not of the world. We affirm this truth. And how do we know this? Because none of you have gone and joined a monastery somewhere and isolated yourself out in, in the woods or something and, and just totally isolated yourself from the world to escape the world. But what does then the relationship between the Christian and the world, what does it look like? How are we to live in the world and not be of the world? How are we to relate to those, how are we to relate to those around us 
who have not believed the gospel, who have not received Christ, who do not follow Jesus, who do not affirm that Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And this right here is where we, who all agree we are in the world but not of the world, this is where we might start to have some multiplicity of opinion on how we should relate to the world. This is where Christians have all kinds of different ideas on what this looks like. And many Christians even disagree with one another on what the relationship should be between the church and the world, between the Christian, the believer, and the unbeliever. And this is why this text, from the mouth and the lips of Jesus our Lord, is so important for us. Because it is in this text that Jesus outlines for us the operating principles by which we, who are in the world but not of the world, should relate to the world around us. So, Matthew chapter 5, with that introduction out of the way, verse 13 through 17, uh, 13 through 16 this morning, rather. You are the light of the earth, the salt. Sorry, let me back up here. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall it be salted again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. Amen. Father, we just thank you for your word today, Lord, as we examine what it means to be salt and to be light in this world, as we contemplate and, and reflect on and think on our relationship as followers of Christ to the fallen world around us I pray that you would help us to see clearly what it is that you're communicating in this passage. Lord, that we would not be salt that is not salty, that we would not be light that is hidden, but Lord, that we would have the effect that you want us as your people to have in the world and on the world that we live in today. That is why you have placed us here and called us here in this time and in this season for such a time as this. We thank you for your word today. We pray that you would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus here uses two word pictures, two metaphors, salt and light. He calls his believers, we've just walked through the Beatitudes, those who follow Christ, those who are truly converted. He says that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So let's look at these, these, these word pictures that he uses. Let's start with salt. How many of you love salt? Yeah, I, I, I'm not a big guy on the salt thing. I, I, I don't like super salty food, but I have friends that are addicted to salt. I go out to eat with them, and they bring the basket of chips around because that's all I eat is Mexican food, and 
they grab the salt shaker and dump the whole thing on there before they even taste one chip. Are you one of those people? We primarily think of salt in our world as a flavor enhancer. It adds some flavor to life. But in Jesus' day, that was not the primary use of salt. In fact, that wasn't what salt was used for hardly at all. In Jesus' day, they didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have, as my grandma used to call it, an icebox. There was no such thing as Freon, modern refrigeration. And so to keep meat from going bad, you had to salt it. Salt was a preservative. It would preserve and stop the decay that would take place in, a, in, in meat and in food. And so it was in a very, very, very important part of life in uh, the first century. Because without refrigeration, food and meat especially would spoil very quickly. And to stop that, to prevent that decay, to prevent that spoil, to prevent it being coming infested with all kinds of with all kinds of bacteria and maggots and all of this nasty stuff, you would salt the meat. And when you would do that, you could keep it much, much, much longer. And in the same way, what Jesus here is saying is that we as believers are to act as preservatives in the society and in the culture that we live in to keep it from complete corruption and decay. That's what it means to be the salt. That we are sprinkled throughout the world, sprinkled throughout the culture, sprinkled throughout our families, our workplaces, our communities, our neighborhoods, and that as we live for Christ, we are salting the earth. We are literally preventing the world from complete collapse into total destruction and decay. In the same way, Jesus says, we are the light of the world. Light is used in the Bible often to refer to the truth that illuminates. Those who do not have the truth are often called those who are in darkness. And we who have been illuminated had our lives enlightened by the light of the Holy Spirit and the light of Christ. We are now to shine that light, to shine this truth. And Jesus says that we do this by our good deeds, our good works. Which raises the question, as we shine our lights by our good deeds, it raises the question, what is good? If, if I'm to shine the truth of Christ, the light of Christ, by my good works, by my good deeds, how do I know what is good? How in the world do I know? Do I learn what is good from the culture that I live in? Do I learn what is good from the family I grew up in? Where do we know? How can we know what is good as compared to bad? What is true as compared to false? What is right as compared to wrong? How do I know what are good deeds versus evil deeds? 
Well, there's only one ultimate source that defines what good truly is. And of course, that is the light of revelation, the word of God, the truth of God's word. I know asking what is, how do I know what good is, what is good? I know it might seem like a ridiculous question, but we live in ridiculous times. We live in the days that Isaiah talked about, where those people, where people are calling evil good and they're calling good evil. We live in those days. And so if I'm going to know what is good, that I might therefore do these good deeds and do these good works, I must define it solely based on God's revelation, the word of God. If I try to draw what I think is good from the culture or my family or from what I see on TV or entertainment, I'm going to have a distorted view of what goodness is and what righteousness is. But God's word is the single and the soul lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path that defines for us what is good and what is evil so that we may know it and that we may do it and therefore shine as lights in the world, shining forth the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word through our good deeds and our actions. Now Jesus again says that we are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. I want you to think about what Jesus is saying about the world by calling us salt and light. By calling us salt and light, Jesus is saying something about the world. By calling us salt, Jesus is saying that the world is in a constant state of decay and going bad. That's what Jesus is saying about the world. That without the preserving effects of his church, the world would decay until it is completely rotten and spoiled. Likewise, by calling us the light of the world, Jesus is saying that the world is in darkness, that the world is devoid of the truth, that the world is full of unrighteousness whereby men suppress the truth about God that has been revealed even in creation, and that it is our job as believers to go into the darkness of the world with the light of the truth of God's revelation in the gospel. So the world is in a constant state of decay and moral decline. The world is in a constant state of darkness. It is a dark place. It is a decaying place. It is a place that is going bad. And Jesus himself is the one that can only bring light and renewal to what is dead and dying. Because Jesus is the only one who has risen from the dead. Because Jesus, through the power that resides in him, is the one who walked out of the tomb on that day, has the power to give life and light to that which is dead and dying. And he calls us, his people, those who have been marked off and sanctified unto him to be his agents in the world of renewal, of bringing light and life and preserving the culture around us. That is what he has called his people 
to do. To make a difference in the world. Now, Jesus here in both metaphors, both in the salt picture and in the light picture, he talks about salt that is not salty and he talks about light that is hidden. In both of these word pictures, he he talks about those who would try to, hear me, minimize the difference between themselves and the world around them. When we go through the Beatitudes, as we did over the last eight weeks, we see there is a a chasm, a, a bright line that is dividing us from the world. We are not of the world. We are not like the world. We do not share the same values of the world, the same beliefs of the world. We don't think like the world. We don't act like the world. We don't talk like the world. We shouldn't look like the world. We should see that very clearly as we've gone through the Beatitudes. But then Jesus, as he begins talking about now our relationship to the world, he says, there are some of you who will try to minimize the differences just as salt that is not salty, just as light that is hidden, there will be believers who try to blend in and not stand out. And we see this even in our day that there are concerted efforts to minimize the differences between the church and the world. These are efforts that are made to try to appear relevant to the world around us. Things, statements like this, look, we're just like you. We're just, look, we're we're just like you. We're people just like you. Well, Jesus says, no, we're not. We're not. We're different. We're different. Flip over with me if you have your Bibles to 1 Peter We looked at this passage last Sunday night when we were looking on what Peter taught on worship. 1 Peter chapter 2. Listen listen to what Peter says about who we are in Christ. Look at verse 4. Speaking about Jesus, it says, As you come to him, and it's talking about coming to him for spiritual health and nourishment that we see in the first two verses there. As you come to Christ, and then it says that Jesus, he is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he is chosen and precious. So Jesus, rejected by the world, but chosen and precious to God. And in the same way, in verse 9, he's going to say the same thing about us. Verse 9, he says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Listen, we're not like the world. We're distinct from the world. We are called out from the world. We are chosen by God to be distinct, to be a royal priesthood unto him, to be a holy nation unto him, to declare and to proclaim his marvelous praises in the world. So if we go around in the world saying, we're just like you, we're just like the world. No, we have received saving grace. We have received adoption as sons and daughters. We have been born again by the Spirit of God, filled with the Spirit of God. We used to be like the world, but that was then. We once were not a people, but now in Christ we are a people. We once had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And this changes us. It changes who we are. It changes our identity so that I am no longer like the world. At the most fundamental level of who I am, I am born again. But there are efforts that are made and, and are still being made that would try to, to minimize those differences. Flip back with me to Matthew chapter 5. So Jesus says, what good is salt if it's not salty? We are to be as distinct from the world as salt is to a slab of meat. Very different. There, there's a real distinction there. There's no confusion there. When you sit down at, you know, to eat and they put a steak in front of you. You don't sit there and go, which is the salt and which is the steak? I don't know. I can't really tell. Oh, it's obvious. And Jesus says that we are to be just as distinct from the world as salt is to meat. But he says if the salt is not salty, it is worthless. Now in Jesus' day, their primary source for salt was the Dead Sea. And salt gathered from there would oftentimes, they didn't have uh, the refinement mechanisms that we have to, to purify the, the salt that was mined. And so oftentimes when, when they gathered the salt, it would be mixed with other minerals that over time would leach out from the salt its saltiness. And so their salt would go bad. Where, where we live today and with our modern mechanisms and, and, and processes, you can leave salt on the shelf forever and it will never go bad. But in Jesus' day, because it was contaminated by other minerals that would leach its saltiness out, over time, it would no longer be salty. And Jesus says, salt that is not Salty is worthless. And in the same way today, if a Christian is not salty, it is most likely because they have also been contaminated by the world. And it has leached out their saltiness. Jesus says that if, the, if we will not be salty and preserve, do, do our work in the world, 
that we will be trampled under the foot of men. That Christians will become seen as good for nothing and persecuted, which we, when we looked at the previous two verses last week, we saw that there's a real possibility that even in our own culture that Christians could face persecution. But what comes before persecution is salt that is not salty. Jesus also says that we should not be lights that don't shine or that are hidden. He says, you don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. Number one, that sounds like a fire hazard. But when you light a lamp, you put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Jesus says, in the same way, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. God has not called us to be undercover Christians. I've said this many times. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as an undercover Christian. The people in your life should not be shocked when they find out that you follow Jesus. You're a Christian? Really? Wow. Okay. It should be obvious to everyone around us that we follow Christ and we submit to his word because he is our king. But what happens when you hide the light? What happens if you were to take a, a light and, and put it under a basket? When, when you remove the light, when you diminish the light, you call forth the darkness. And specifically here, Jesus is not talking personally in our own lives, though this is true. Jesus is talking about the effect that Christians are to have in the wider culture. And as Christians retreat from the culture, as Christians do not shine their light in the culture, we call forth the darkness. When Christians retreat from education, when Christians retreat from medicine, when Christians retreat from government, when Christians retreat from these things saying, well, it's the public square and, and I can't live out my Christian values in the public square, we are not being faithful to our calling and we are calling forth the darkness in the culture. If, if the world is getting darker, it is the church's fault. It's the church's fault because the church is to be the salt and the light. And so if the world is ever increasing in, in going towards evil and decay of the culture, it's because at some point in time, Christians start, stopped being salty out in the world, started hiding their light, started being sil silencing themselves not speaking the truth, which is the light that we're to share. So the deterioration that we're seeing in our culture today rests squarely on the shoulders of the church. Because the church has retreated from the public square. And in doing so, we are responsible for the mess that we are in. Amen. 
And the only way to reverse the decay is to add the salt. The only way to dispel the darkness is to shine the light. And this is what all of us are called to do every day. And notice here where Jesus says that the light will shine forth first. You put it on a bat, you put it on a stand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. Where does this start? In your house. If the light's not shining in your house, I guarantee you it's not shining out in the world. If you won't open the book in your home, why in the world would you think you're going to share it with people out in the world? It starts in the home. It starts right where you're at. If I won't, if I won't share the gospel with my kids or my wife, if our lights are not shining in the house, there's no way that we're going to be a city on a hill. We've allowed ourselves to be silenced in the public square, but before that started, we were silent in our own homes. We've allowed the witness of God's word to be removed from our homes. I remember as a kid, both, both sets of my grandparents, they had a family Bible. Did anybody have a, a grandparents that they had a family Bible? It was like this thick. <laughs> Probably cost $400. It was, it was ornate, it was, had all these illustrations, and it, it was a treasured possession. It, it occupied a special place in the home. And too often, I think that families had that tradition of having a nice Bible, but it just sat there on a shelf. Isn't that pretty? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that nice? Well, that's better than having nothing. But it doesn't do a whole lot of good if it's not opened. A sword doesn't do very much damage, doesn't do its work, doesn't accomplish its task if you keep it in its sheath. It has, it has to be let loose. It has to be used. I'm very grateful that I, I grew up in a home that the word of God was open. It, wasn't, it didn't just occupy a place on the shelf, but it was a part of our daily lives. This is where this starts. If we, and I, I want to see the reversal of the decay in our culture. That's what I want to see. Do, do you want to see that? Do you want to see there be renewal in our world and revival in our world? It starts with God's people. It starts with the church. It starts with us not playing church, not playing Christians, 
but taking our faith seriously. Which means opening the word in the home, praying in the home, worshiping in the home, making that a priority rather than having our home life oriented around all of the things that the world orients their home life around. Right? The, the things that the world orients their home life around, entertainment, right? We, we all you know, watch TV as a family. Well, that was fine until everyone got their own phones and, and now so many families, they get home and everyone just goes off to their own corner and they sit there on this thing. It's, it's disintegration of the family. God's people ought not to be like that. God's people ought not to be like that. Christ is to be the center of our lives. Christ is to be the center of our home. I'm not, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you can't watch television. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that television shouldn't be the, the glue that holds your family together. That is a weak glue. That's going to come apart in 10 seconds. It has to be Christ. In him, all things hold together. If Christ is not the foundation, then the house will crumble. It will crumble. A home, a marriage, a family, a relationship, a nation, a community. If Christ is not the foundation, it will crumble. It has to start with us. It has to start with us. We have to shine our lights. We have to let our lights be seen. That, that, that's what he says. Let your light shine before men. So, so fathers, when you read your Bible, don't go into your closet and shut the door. Go, go to the living room. Go to the dining room. Go to the kitchen table. Open up your Bible and, and read it in front of your family. Don't hide your light. Invite them into it with them. This is what we do as a Christian family. We orient our lives around the word of God. Amen. <laughs> when you hide the light, darkness invades. But we have the power, hear me in this, we have the power to dispel darkness. Light triumphs over darkness. We have to, re, re, we as Christians have to restore our confidence in the power of the light. We've allowed ourselves to be deceived that the darkness is more powerful than the light when in reality we've just stopped shining it. We must restore our confidence in the power of the word of God, of the truth, of the light. And when we do, and then we take it to the public square, we will have an impact in the world around us. Is that not what Jesus is saying here? If we are to be salt in a decaying world, if we are to be light in a dark world, does not salt and light have an impact in the wider culture around it, in the wider world around it? Well, of course it does. So the idea that Christians are not 
going to have an influence in the world and the culture around them. This is an idea that is foreign to Jesus. In fact, Jesus says we are to have an impact in the world. Jesus' expectation is that his followers, followers will have a dramatic effect on the people and the culture that surrounds them. When we get to the end of Matthew, whenever that will be in 2035 or whatever, <laughs> and we look at the Great Commission, isn't that what Jesus commissions his church to do? Go to the nations and disciple them. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded. This is the call of the church to transform the world, to have a fundamental impact in the culture around us. There, are, there is a very real movement, a retreatist movement within the Christian church that says the church will have no impact on the culture, that the culture and the world is just going to get worse and worse and decay and decay and darker and darker. And the only way that happens is if the church retreats. But Jesus said that he is building his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That means that the church's job is to be on the offense, advancing, taking territory. So a church that retreats from the culture is a church that's being unfaithful to Christ as king. Notice also the audience that Jesus is talking to. He's not speaking to the elite. He's not speaking to the powerful. He's not speaking to the well-educated. He's not speaking to the influencers of his day. He's speaking to a handful of Jewish peasants. They are poor. They are working class. They are blue collar. They live paycheck to paycheck. We see Peter fishing, living day to day off his catch. And he tells these people, you're going to transform the world. You're going to change the world if you are faithful in being salt and being light. And that's exactly what they did. By the end of the book of Acts, the church is called the people who turn the world upside down. That's what the world calls the church. In one generation, they turned the world upside down for Jesus. And in every generation's, in every generation, Faithful Christians have changed their world since Christ. Can I give you a few? Here, here are just some historical contributions that Christianity has made to the world. How about the establishment of a legal system based on the principles of justice found in God's law? Before, Christ, before Christians entered the world and began thinking about how to live out their faith... There's no such thing as a legal system. It was might makes right. Whatever the king says goes. The Christians come along and they say, wait, there's somebody above the king. And he's given his law. And so even the king's word and the king's law should be governed by God's law. And that all men, here's another one, all men are created equal. That's a Bible idea. That's a Christian idea. That we are all created in the imago Dei, in the image of God. 
universal human rights? That's a Christian idea. Didn't exist before Christ came into the world. Based on the fact that we are all created in the image of God. The dignity and value of every human life. Based on the Christian faith. The development of the printing press, which led to the mass production of literature, which led to the, 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 the mass adoption and, and pursuit of literacy, is a Christian idea. The, the, very first bi- the very first thing to ever be printed on a printing press was the Bible. That was why it was invented, to get God's word out to the nations. It was a Christian who said, how can we get God's word out without having scribes having to take a whole year of their life to to write and complete one Bible? The printing press was invented. Higher education, the university system, is a Christian innovation. Art, music, literature, advanced by Christians such as Bach and Handel and Vivaldi. Hospitals and orphanages are uniquely Christian ideas. The idea, just the very idea that you should help the sick and the needy instead of letting them languish and die is a Christian idea. It's an idea that first century uh, people held in utter disdain. Why would you help the weak? The weak are a blight in first century eyes on society. You should just let them die. But Christians even began to rescue children that were thrown out on trash heaps to die in the first century in Rome. That was a very common practice. It was called exposure. If, if a child was born, had some sort of defect, some sort of malady, or just for any reason the father didn't want the child, you could just throw it out with the garbage. No problem. Christians began going around at night and collecting the children from the garbage and said, these are... These are people created in the image of God. Hospitals and orphanages would not exist if it weren't for Christians. How about the abolition of slavery? Would not have happened without Christians. William Wilberforce, a a British politician and preacher, led the fight for the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. The British Empire, which is the first empire in human history, human history, to abolish slavery slavery led the way led the way that 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 conscience of the nation was pierced by one man who said this is immoral according to God's law we're all created in the image of God if it weren't for Christians if it weren't for Christians being salt and light slavery would not have been abolished in the western world And slavery is still practiced in many countries around the world today. Christians need to be salt and light in those places. The development of science is Christian. Scientists such as Galileo and Kepler and Newton were all devout Christians who believed that the natural world was a reflection of God's order and design And that we should study the natural world so that we might learn about God, the creator. So how do we apply this? Well, there's so many ways to apply it. We can be salt and light every single day. 
Every time we live in defiance to the culture that's dying around us, we are being salt and light. Even what we're doing right now as we gather for worship on the Lord's day, setting aside this day as holy as unto him, we're being salt and light. Your car parked out there in the parking lot is salt and light to everybody who drives by this morning. Everything we do in defiance to the dying culture around us, we are being salt and we are being light. When you submit to your elders as they teach the word of God, you're being salt and light. When we pray for our civil magistrates and ask for God's blessing upon them, instead of cursing them like everybody else, we're being salt and we're being light. What if we as Christians, every single time we're in a conversation where somebody in government is being bashed, what if we just stopped and said, why don't we pray for them? That's being salt and light. Instead of joining in, yeah, I know inflation, yeah, I know grocery prices, yeah, I know the gas, yeah, I know this, yeah, I know that. What if we just said, you know, the Bible says we should pray for them. Why don't we pray? That's being salt and light. Husbands and fathers, when you take the responsibility for the spiritual state of your household and you take initiative to disciple your family in the word of God, you are being salt and light. When you exercise your authority as the gatekeeper of your home and oppose the demonic influence of the culture in the lives of your kids and your wife, you are being salt and light. Wives, when you submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord, you are being salt and you are being light. Children, when you obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, you are being salt and you are being light. Parents, when you in love discipline your children for their good in obedience to God's word, you are being salt and you are being light. Singles, when you remain sexually abstinent, submitting yourselves to God's word, you are being salt and you are being light. When you wait for a godly spouse, instead of marrying someone uh, who is outside the faith, you are being salt and you are being light. When you young people tell your friends that there is a better way to live than by the, the, the mantra of this day of hookup culture, meaningless sex with strangers, which leads to using alcohol and other drugs to numb the pain and psychological torment that comes from a lifestyle of bondage to sin, when you show them a better way, you're being salt and you're being light. When we don't use the probably the most prevalent drug in our culture, pornography, when we refuse to give in to that, or if we need help and accountability, when we seek it out so that we can walk in freedom that the Christ purchased for us, we are being salt and we are being light. When we, redo, when we do not return evil for evil, but rather good and blessing when we are cursed and when we are hated, we respond in love, we are being salt and light. When your HR department at work asks you to sign a piece of paper that you affirm that certain people are righteous or evil based solely on the color of their skin and you refuse to do it, you are being salt and you are being light. When you don't turn a blind eye to the plight of the needy, but seek to ease their suffering in the name of Christ, we are being salt and we are being light. When we pray and intercede for God to intervene in the lives of others, we are being salt and we are being light. When we refuse to go with our friends to see a movie that is full of adultery and blasphemy, we are being salt and we are being light. 
There's so many ways that we can be salt and light every single day. When we share the gospel or give a ready response for the hope that we have, we're being salt and light. Whatever our vocation, whatever our occupation, whatever our station in life, when we seek to live it out under God's word, obeying him, giving God glory, we are being salt and we are being light. We are preserving the culture. We are shining forth God's truth and it lifts humanity when we do it. All of these actions that I just described go against the natural order of things. Our natural world is tainted with sin. We are called to be the preserving agents. When we rebel against and defy the sinful culture instead of submitting and instead submit to the word of God, we pour out a little salt and we shine a little light. Jesus' instructions is that we would be salt and light. His followers would be salt and light in the world. Therefore, our relationship to the world cannot be one of cultural retreat or cowardly hiding or trying to minimize our differences. But in fact, we should accentuate our differences, be a city on a hill, be bold in our faith, putting our lights on display. And when we do, we will preserve the world around us, preventing it from falling into further and deeper decay. And we will light the world with our good deeds that give God glory. Amen. I invite you to stand with me. As we close today. I invite our worship team to come and the ushers to prepare to serve us communion today. Let's just go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of our hearts. Lord, if there are areas where we are falling short, that you would highlight them for us right now. Lord, none of us is perfect. We all need your help and the help of your spirit. Lord, your throne is a throne of grace. And you call us to approach your throne of grace with boldness. Even with our many faults and failures, you love us. And you died for our sin. That we might repent and be made whole. That we might shine as lights in the world. Lord, help us to shine brighter. Help us to display our good deeds and our good works, not being ashamed of the gospel, which is the power of God, but rather proclaiming it, living it out every single day. Lord, we pray for the renewal of our nation. Lord, we know that you're moving all around the world. We pray that you would move here in our community as well. Lord, that you would move in our lives, that you would move in our families, that you would move in our communities, you would move in our workplaces. Help us to realize, Lord, that the moving of your spirit is through your people as we shine, as we are salty. Thank you for working through us even this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.